so much. Can we give Thea a hand, please? I feel like she did such a good job. I did try to convince her to do the announcements on rollerblades. I felt like that might be more compelling. And uh, she said no. So, and then with camp, yes, we did meet at camp. So when you hear my kids screaming, you can be thankful that camp is the reason why that is that happening. So anyway, I'm excited. We have been going through a series on prayer, and it's about three months now that we've been talking about prayer, and we're not finished. And so I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Um, we are not just learning about prayer, but we're trying to build a culture of people who take prayer seriously at Foundation Church. Can I get an amen? I don't really ask for that a lot, so when I do, I expect it. Now, our team has had two primary goals as we've worked on this. First of all, that our church would be involved in a vibrant prayer culture, but secondly, that we would believe in the power of prayer. So it's not just about knowing what prayer is or studying prayer. That's all really good, and we have definitely talked about the intricacies of prayer and the types of prayer. But most importantly to me and to our team is that you believe in the power of prayer. Jesus believed in that power so much that in the final hours of his time on earth, before he was going to be arrested, he spent precious time and energy praying. And that's the prayer that we're going to look at today, okay? So the setting is the upper room. That's where we see this happening shortly before Jesus is going to be arrested. And they had just finished eating together. The dynamics in this moment are really important for us to understand because Jesus knows that because his time on earth is short, that the hours are very precious and need to be spent doing the things that matter most. And we actually see in John 16, we see the last teaching that Jesus gives his disciples before he prays. He says in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, right? We know this, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus knows that the world is going to be full of difficult things. It's going to be a difficult place for everybody that lives here. And particularly, he knows that to be true for those who follow him because we're in the world and there's an enemy who desperately wants to destroy you. More on that later. But being in a broken world means that we're going to have trouble, and there's no question about that. So Jesus says, you will have trouble, but take heart, because Jesus has overcome the world. Our reality is not one where evil gets to rule our lives, right? But we are citizens of the kingdom of God, and God is the highest authority. So knowing that, this prayer that Jesus prays is incredibly powerful for teaching the followers, the disciples in that moment, and for teaching those of us who now follow Jesus today. It's actually interesting because it's the only extended prayer that's recorded in Scripture. 
Many times throughout scripture, we see that Jesus retreated to pray. So we know that he did it often, but this is the only one that we have in scripture where it's extended at length in detail what he was praying for. That's why this prayer in John 17 is so incredible because it's an insider's look at a personal prayer from Jesus himself. Now, I I said this before a few weeks ago when we started talking about this prayer. And I would say that again because I think it's spectacular. When you pray with somebody, whether it's for uh, a number of years or just for a few moments, the things that come out of our mouths in prayer are the things that matter to us most. So when you pray with somebody, you get to really know what's on their heart, right? It's, you can have small talk. You can say, how's it going? And you're going to get a lot of, it's going great. It's going fine, right? But then you pray with somebody and the things that are actually consuming their soul whether it's worry or praise, whatever it may be, that's what you're going to find out. And that's what we're going to see in Jesus and this prayer. The Gospels are amazing because we see so much of Jesus' teaching, which shows us God's heart for humanity and his design for us to flourish. But this passage in particular gives us a unique look into what Jesus is thinking and feeling in the final hours before he's arrested and crucified. So a few weeks ago, I started with the first part of this prayer. I just want to recap it for you briefly so you know where we were. Um, First of all, Jesus' primary concern is that God would be glorified. If you remember the early parts of this prayer, he prays that he would glorify God. And we talked about that. We talked about the primary aim of Jesus' life was to glorify God. And then he prayed for those who need salvation, right? For those who don't know him yet, who need to know him in a personal way. And then we prayed for those people. We pray that they would know and experience God. And then he finishes his prayer by petitioning that people would not just know God by knowledge, but they would personally experience God. Those were the opening lines of Jesus's prayer. And so today, we're going to cover a section where Jesus specifically prays for his disciples. All of that first section was about Jesus' relationship to God and what he's desiring personally from God, the Father. And now he's going to pray for his disciples, the people that he has been spending the last few years with of his life in ministry. And so you know that this prayer is for a group of people that matter deeply to Jesus, right? His disciples were his best friends, his partners in ministry, the people that he lived with, that, you know, that he smelled around, right? Because he was human. Jesus smelled. There's no doubt, okay? The things that you do with the closest of people in your life, that's what Jesus did with these people, and now he's going to pray for them specifically. And so we're going to get into it. John chapter 17, if you're following along in your Bible, your app, or even on the screen, We're going to start with verses 6 through 10. It says this, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given to me comes from you. For I give them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me 
through them. So Jesus starts this section of prayer by making a distinction that he's praying specifically for those that God entrusted to him. And these people, they know God's commands, which led them to know and believe, as Jesus says, that he is indeed the Messiah. He's praying for them specifically. And that belief led them to trust Jesus' teaching and to trust that that was God's design for flourishing. I love this famous, if you're into sports like I am, I love this famous phrase from a coach years ago, Coach Dennis Green for the Arizona Cardinals, was asked in a post-game press conference after they lost to the Bears, he said, they were asked basically like, what did you see out there? What did you think about the team? And he famously responds with, they are who we thought they were. He says it much more angrily because he's just coming off a loss. They are who we thought they were. And I've always thought that this response was simple and yet profound because they could not take what they knew in their head, what the team knew, the coaches, the players, they could not take what they knew in their head about their opponents and translate it into enough of a desire to win, to beat the team that they had been preparing for their whole week, right? They knew everything. They are who we thought they were, but we still couldn't beat them. And I think Jesus is making a similar distinction In this section of prayer, he's saying to those of us that there are people who know every word of God, the religious zealots, they know every word that has been recorded up until that point, and yet some of them still doubt that Jesus was the Son of God. Scripture points us to the idea that the reason that they doubted that Jesus was indeed the Messiah was because he did not match their preconceived ideas of what the Messiah would be or what he would look like, or how he would act. He, they thought he would be this kingly person who would demand respect for the Jewish people and for their religion and for everything that they were, and he just wasn't that way. He was a servant. He was a person who taught to the smallest and largest groups of people, whoever was there that was willing to open their heart to what he was saying. And... Before we pass judgment on the people who didn't believe despite all they knew about Scripture and about Jesus, I will say that I, as I imagine many of you, can be guilty of the same error. We must take the time to know and practice every teaching of Jesus, especially the ones that confront our current understanding and practice of faith. Ooh, that does not feel good, Pastor Rick. That's the process, though, of being sanctified. This may seem bold, but I feel like I needed to say it. I actually wrote it in my notes this morning. I've been wrestling with it for weeks. But if some area of your life has not been confronted by the teachings of Jesus, you either don't know the teachings well enough or you're not being honest with yourself. Right? Like if you, if you, thank you, Chris. If you haven't been confronted by scripture in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. You either don't know scripture well enough, which that's okay, or you're not being honest with yourself, and that's okay too. It's just not okay to stay that way. So when it does happen eventually, or maybe it's happened plenty of times, I want to welcome you to the club because I've been a member for a long time now. We can't possibly get it perfect, but Jesus did. You will not practice Christianity 
perfectly, but that's okay because you're in good company with me and those people that are sitting next to you. When Jesus taught, it definitely made people uncomfortable. And so when he says in this first section that he's praying for those people who believe in him so that they might hold tightly to his teachings, he's praying for a group of people who no doubt actually took what they knew in their head and they applied it in their heart and they had faith because Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. In fact, C.S. Lewis famously wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity, and I would highly recommend reading this. The quote's going to be on the screen. This is what he said about the idea of Jesus being a good teacher or a prophet, but not being the Messiah. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who mere, a man was, I'm sorry, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus would said Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that door open to us. He did not intend to. Here are the implications of what Jesus is saying here in this prayer. If Jesus is a good preacher, or a good teacher, rather, then his words are great ideas, yes. But if he is indeed the son of God, then his entire life is a picture of the nature and character of God. Can you believe that? You can actually see who God is through understanding Jesus' life. Jesus prays for the people who have studied scripture deeply and know it by heart, and that knowledge has led them to believe that he is indeed the son of God. And he prays that by following him, by being his disciples and obeying his teachings, that they would be glorifying God. That they would glorify God just as Jesus did. Now, do you remember how this prayer opened? We talked about it briefly, but he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So even though Jesus is preaching, or I'm sorry, praying for his disciples, his primary concern is that they too, just like he would, would glorify God. That's his primary concern. And that's the theme that we're going to see throughout this prayer. And just like them and just like Jesus, our primary concern should be to glorify God, right? If it's the prayer he prayed for himself and the prayer that he prayed for his disciples, then that is the prayer he's praying for you and I as well. Oddly enough, I know this feels foreign, but God's primary concern is not your career or your plans or your wealth or even your family. He is primarily concerned with you bringing him glory. And his design is that you take those good gifts that he's given you and you bring him glory with them. To take everything he's blessed you with, talents, money, 
influence, whatever it may be, to take those things and bring him glory. He didn't give them to you to squash them. He gave them to you so that you would glorify him much. That's how good God is to us. He gives us good gifts that he might be glorified. That's really good news. The prayer continues in verse 11. It says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that, you, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world anymore than I, any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So Jesus continues his prayer, um, and he wants us to see the world. This is his prayer, that we would see the world, that his disciples would see the world through a spiritual Lens. Now, there's lenses, there's cameras all over phones. We have a camera right back there, right? And one of the things that often is used in tandem with the lens is a filter, right? Have you guys seen all the filters, right? No picture online anymore is actually an authentic picture. It's been doctored in some way or another. I'm sure there's a filter on that camera right now, right, Patrick? Yep, sure. Thanks for playing along. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 9. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus starts by recognizing he wants us to see the world through a spiritual lens. And he wants us to recognize that one of those lenses is that God's power would give his disciples unity. If you remember when we covered the Lord's Prayer, it seems like forever ago, when Jesus praised this line, his opening line was concerned about understanding that who we're praying to matters a lot, that the name of God alone is power. Hallowed be your name. That name, God, was revered so much by the people of the day that they didn't even actually say the word God. They came up with a totally different word out of nowhere to describe who God is because they revered the name of God so much. There is power in the name of God. In the Old Testament alone, there are a number of names for God in the original language that are translated to God in our English Bibles. And I thought I would take a moment for some of you in-stay graduates and some of you theological nerds like myself to share the names of God and what they mean. So this might mean nothing to you. It might mean something significant, but it matters to all of us, okay? So first of all, we have Jehovah Nisi. Translated to God in our Bible, but it means the Lord is my banner. Then we have Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. Oof. Jehovah Tsekinu, I'm sure I butchered that one. The Lord is our righteousness. And Jehovah Mekodishkim, 
the Lord who sanctifies you. The name of God alone is powerful. And when Jesus prays in this section, he is praying that the fullness of God's name would be made known to the disciples. He wants us to understand that when we call on the name of God, that when he prays to God, that God would keep his disciples and keep us that we are praying to a God who is victorious, just as the Israelites were when they were against all odds. We are praying to a God who protects his people like a shepherd who protects his flock. When we pray to God and we use his name, we are praying to a God who can heal miraculously without cause, however he wants to. When we pray to a God, when we pray to our God, his name, the name of God is so powerful that he is with you in every single moment of your life. When we pray to God, we are praying to a God who is righteous on our behalf and makes us righteous. And when we pray to God, we are praying to our God who sanctifies us day by day, moment by moment. The name of God is powerful. And in this prayer, Jesus asks that his power, the name specifically in his, the power in his name would do something very Specific. It's in verse 11. I'm going to read it to you again. He says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. He's praying for unity. He's praying for us to be together. One of the most powerful tricks that the devil has in his arsenal is to divide us to divide disciples, to divide Christians from each other, that we might turn on each other. But Jesus prays that we might be made one, not by our strength, but again, by the power in the name of God. That's the power we need. Jesus knew he needed it that badly that he prayed that God's powerful name would be what would unify us as Christians and as a church. I want to say this. God does not delight in our complaints about other believers. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, I heard it. So I better not hear the other thing. I'm just kidding. He does not delight in our complaints about other believers. God does not delight in our criticism of other churches just because they're different from us. Right? If a person is following Jesus and they're giving it all they've got, and they stumble and they fall, what do we do? We pick them up. We help them get back on the right track. If a church is following Jesus with everything they've got, but they sing different songs or they run programs that we don't love, we're still meant to cheer them on, right? We are meant to praise God for the hundreds, if not thousands of unique expressions called the local church that are rooted in a love for Jesus, worshiping just like we are all over the world right now. God's name has power, and Jesus prays that that power would bring us unity, that we would see the world through a spiritual lens, and that filter would have unity written all over it. It's so contrary to how culture is leading us today, to divide and split and and separate where you don't belong from where I belong. But God's name can give us unity. That's the prayer that Jesus prayed. 
that we may be one as God is one by the power of God's name. So the first filter he gives us is to see the world with the filter of unity. The second filter that Jesus prays for is found in verse 13, and that's the filter of joy. He says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus prays that we might have a full measure of joy and not that we have to drum up that joy ourselves, but the joy comes from experiencing God, the joy that exists in the face of our troubles. The joy that exists in the face of being hated, as Jesus notes in this prayer, the joy that is the joy that exists in the face of great pain and great sorrow. So it doesn't always come off as happy. Let's not be confused about the type of joy Jesus is praying for. It doesn't come off as happy because happy comes and goes with our emotions, doesn't it? We all know that. But the joy that Jesus prayed for is that joy that's deep down in the soul of a believer, Much like the aquifer is protected from the impurities of our world and our waste, right? Being filtered out so that it doesn't get down to the deepness that keeps that water clean. Our joy is deeper than happiness. It's deep down in the soul of the believer so that it doesn't get ruined by the toxicity and by the brokenness of our world. That's the type of joy Jesus is praying for. And you might be in a season where that joy is really deep really hard to get to. You might be in a season where you can't even find the strength to pray for that type of joy, and that's okay because Jesus is praying for it right now. Just as he did in this scripture, he's still praying for you to know and experience that joy. And guess what? So is your church, right, church? We're praying for each other. We're praying for that joy to be real. The joy of Jesus is an essential ingredient in helping us see the world as Jesus saw the world, to having that spiritual lens through which we see all things. So the second filter is joy. We have unity, we have joy. And then Jesus finishes this section of the prayer by making yet another distinguishing characteristic of his disciples. In verses 14 and 15, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now, you've likely heard this idea before that you're not of the world, but you're in the world, or you're in the world, but not of the world. And Jesus is connecting this idea to the previous two, to unity and joy. Jesus is saying that we will be distinctly recognized by the unity we have with fellow believers and the joy that we find in Jesus despite our circumstances. And this is the very way of living in this world that others will take notice of. And they will see the love of Jesus in action amongst his disciples, so much so that that Jesus prays that we would not be of the world any more than he is, but that we would be in the world demonstrating this type of life, a life of unity and a life of joy. That's what he prays for. And then in verses 17 through 19, the last few verses that we have for the prayer, Jesus says, now sanctify them by the truth of your word, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, 
I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So Jesus finishes this section of the prayer, the prayer for his closest friends, for his disciples, which would eventually filter down to us. And he asked that they would be sanctified by him. Now, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the process of being made holy. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, a real good, in, in verse 18, it talks specifically about this. It says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. It says that we are being transformed day by day, moment by moment into the image of God, who is indeed holiness defined. God is holiness, and he's transforming us, me, as broken as I am, day by day, moment by moment, into his image. And he's doing the same for anyone who has given their life to Jesus. It's happening with ever-increasing glory, which means you're not perfect today, and that's okay. And it comes from the work of the Spirit. So when Jesus prays that his disciples would be sanctified, he's praying that they would receive the holiness from God in an ever-increasing degree. So how does this happen? It can happen miraculously, but practically speaking, it happens through the word of God, by the power of the spirit of God. God has given us the gift of scripture to shape us, and he empowers us to apply that to our life through the Holy Spirit. That's why we push on reading the Bible and praying every single day, because they are to your soul as food and water are to your body. That's how God sanctifies us. But why is it important that we be sanctified? Well, Jesus notes it in his prayer. It's because we are sent into the world to continue the work that he established. So what is that work? Well, in short, it's the ministry of reconciliation. I'm going to read this section to you. I read you a few weeks ago. It's one of my favorite promises and reminders in all of scripture. It'll be on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the word to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And I know that you have heard me say this, but I'm going to say it again. The God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, sent his son to establish the work of reconciliation between himself and humanity. And guess what? He chose us to continue to make that appeal. He chose us. He chose each one of us, despite all of our flaws and our shortcomings, to continue that appeal. But how does this look practically, right? I know that that's often a question I ask myself. How does this look practically? And I think it can look a lot of ways, but we have certain ways that it looks in this particular passage alone. First of all, 
We know that it means we're not holding people's sins against them. It says it right there in verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. But instead, instead we give them the message of reconciliation, the good news of the gospel. That sounds so nice to hear. It's so warm to the heart. But when it comes down to me not holding someone's sin against them when they have wronged me, that's hard, right? But remember, Scripture is meant to confront us as much as it's meant to encourage us. Jesus prays that we would be changed by Scripture. Everyone has a sin that they wish people would stop holding against them while simultaneously holding on to something else against another person. But as we see here, that's not our responsibility. We are not to hold people's sins against them, but instead we are to give them the message of reconciliation. And this is how I want to close. I think there's two things that this looks like practically. I think it means that we preach the gospel to ourselves and we practice the gospel towards others. I think the message of reconciliation, the work, the appeal that God has given to us to help other people see the beauty of reconciliation is that we first preach the gospel to ourselves and then we practice the gospel towards others. In John 13, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, we are to walk the talk. We practice and participate in the ministry of reconciliation by practicing the gospel and loving others as we wished to be loved. That's how we outwardly practice the message of reconciliation. But it's not only outward. We must also preach the gospel to ourselves. Now, I want to say this. I am certain that I know who your worst critic is. Because I know it's that person sitting in your seat right now. Your worst critic is sitting in your seat right now. You will beat yourself up way more for the things that you think make you fall short or seem not worthy of the love of Jesus or the love of others, whatever it may be. And it's born out of these things that consume our soul, out of the lies that the enemy uses to tell you that you shouldn't be worthy or that you are shameful or that you are not good enough. Shame, accusation, criticism, these are the enemy's tools. But the work of Jesus is a work of freedom. It's the message of reconciliation. It's the message of hope and truth that he has started and is extending to us through the gospel. So we must preach the gospel to ourselves and we must practice the gospel towards others. Will you stand with me, please? I want to pray for you. Because again, like I said, I know that your worst critic is sitting in your seat. And there's probably something that you either are holding on to or 
that you've started to let go and just kind of creeps back into your mind that's stopping you from the work that God is calling you into. And just like Jesus prayed for his disciples, he's praying for you, that you would be kept, that you would be released from the power of the enemy, that you would know the power that's in God's name, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave is at work in your life, relieving you of those things. But sometimes we just hold on to them. And like I said at the very beginning, I don't want to talk about knowledge and prayer. I want to talk about belief in prayer. Because as much as you've probably tried to offload that, it just doesn't always work. Those thoughts, those feelings creep back in, but the power of God's name can release that from you. The power of God's name can do the work to give those things over and let them go. So that's what we're going to pray for today as a church. So will you agree with me in prayer and close your head, or close your eyes, bow your heads, close your heads too. God, as we stand here, as we've heard your word and as it's speaking to us, as it's confronting us, but it's also encouraging us, We know the enemy is at work in our souls and at work in our minds and it's trying to convince us that we don't have a place in your kingdom, that we don't play a role in your kingdom and it's just nonsense, it's garbage. So I pray that the power of your name would help us to be unified to those who we are separated from. I pray that you would bring us together. And God, for those who have no joy, no felt joy in their life, that they would tap into the joy that only Jesus can give that's in their soul right now, that they would dig deep, that they would know that joy despite the sorrow, despite the pain, that they would know and experience your joy. And that the power of your name would release the nonsense, the lies, the shame, that the enemy is trying to use to burden the people in this space right now. God, I ask that that would just be completely wiped away, that people would just open themselves up to the transforming power, to the, the work that you're doing, the ever-increasing moment-by-moment power of transformation in our lives. And God, I pray that it would start with belief in Jesus. Without Jesus, we have no hope. So I pray that the people who are in this space that are still wondering, still doubting, who know that Jesus is the Son of God, but they have yet to believe, that they would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that they would pray authentic prayers to the powerful name of God because they know and believe that Jesus came and did the work on the cross. There is so much joy in that. There is so much unity in that. There is so much freedom in that. So God, I pray that that would be the reality for every single person here. And that God, as we carry the ministry of reconciliation into the households that we know and that we love, to the family members, to the children and the parents that we love that don't know you, God, I pray that it would overwhelm them. 
that your love would overwhelm them. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to sing.